You know, there's really uh, nothing that can divide a church so much like a UNC Duke game. So I, I hope you have all loved your neighbor. Um, I, 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 uh, I apologize if, if any of you during football season have felt the way that I felt because basketball is <laughs> not my sport. And um, I, I, I'm a bit ashamed to tell I fell asleep during the game. <laughs> so, um, I, I wanted to, to share this. Actually, I, I know that, that there's always, um, this is a wonderful morning. I love what was shared. It's so easy to, to discern when the word is in scripture, you know, because it's the word of God. Um, but I think it's good for us to remember this. And I, I wanted to, to read this for us. This is 1 Corinthians 14. And this is kind of the heart of why we do have this open mic, this understanding that we are not the uh, arbiters of the word of God, those of us in leadership or pastors here. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three people should speak, the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. It's a challenging scripture, and it's challenging to practice. Um, but we try to do it, and I hope we do it well, and I hope it, it, that we do all these things to build us all up. I was uh, mindful this week, as we're, we're, we're in this, this Lenten series, and I began hearing the, these phrases, and this is not from, from my kids, but you, you pick up on this, right? That, that whole clearing of the air in advance. You know, Dad, will you promise not to be mad? Has, has anybody heard that one before? You know, or, or the one that I, I, I did hear, honey, will you do something for me? You know, and you don't want to yet commit to it because you don't know what's coming. You know, like, can I promise that I won't be mad? I don't know. <laughs> I know myself well enough to say that the answer is maybe, but I need more information, right? That's often how we have to tend to these things. There's this great line in The, the Mandalorian. I, I don't know if I'm the only one who's watched that. Um, if you haven't seen that, you've probably seen at least the memes. You know, this is the way. You know, this, this idea of like, now we know. Like, th this is the way. We've, we've got this down. If you're an older crowd, like with me, and I'm grouping myself in this, not not aged out of this, but, you know, there's this, this whole thing that we had where Jerry Maguire came out, and the, the whole, everybody thought it was the most romantic line ever. You had me at hello, right? And everybody, yeah, y'all remember that. Um, how powerful is it when words don't need caveats, right? When you can trust the person speaking that, that you, you know that no matter what follows is going to be in force. You know that whatever is going to follow next is going to be in spirit. You, you, you know that you can't surprise them, that there's going to be some, some change where all of a sudden we started going one path, but now we have to veer because we said something else. You know, what things in life don't we need these caveats for? And the answer is unfortunately not many because we're an unreliable people, right? Some of us may be more than others. Um, <laughs> If y'all can believe it, Palm Sunday is in one week. Uh, but what we've been doing this entire series of, of Lent is this idea of, of starting from one place and, and turning, and turning more and more. We're turning away from some things, even good things, 
and turning towards other things. And so we turned away from, we've, I've got the whole you are here part of, of our, our series here, where we've turned away from, from sin, we've turned away from self, we've turned to the road ahead. And this week, what we're going to be facing is this picture of who the Lord is, with his voice speaking to us, where he's brought us on this path. We're going to be using Psalm 132 to talk about it, this idea of turning to his voice and therefore having obedience when he speaks this is Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. Will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, the statutes I teach them, and their, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. This is a, a, a deep psalm, one that, that whenever I first read it, you might think, where in the world are we talking about obedience and hearing the voice of God? And hopefully by the time I finish, you'll understand exactly where I'm talking about what we've got in this psalm. It, it dives deep into history. It kind of assumes that you know something. Again, the, these psalms have all been the psalms that are, are a part of the songs of ascent, the songs of, of the journey. And they would sing these songs, they were not poems, they were songs that would be sung as the pilgrims were approaching Jerusalem. Um, and it was a whole way of remembering where they came from and what they're going towards and celebrating who God is and what he's doing. So how to read the psalm, first off, let's catch up a little bit on our history. This is the history of the psalm and, and the ark. This is a recounting of what's told to us in 1 Chronicles 13. I've got a little abridged picture for you here. This is from uh, 1 Chronicles 13. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it's the, the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. They didn't have the ark with them. It was in a pasture somewhere, forgotten. And, you know, there's, there's a little bit of shade being cast towards Saul here. Like, we didn't even care about this during the reign of Saul. It's, it's this relic of our history that we have forgotten about and kind of left all on its own devices. That very telling verse, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. And I, I think that sometimes this actually still rings true for us, and, and this is not to get off on a tangent here, but 
that we're not blaming somebody else, but think about the context of this for us. You know, circumstances, time, rulers, it doesn't matter. Do we inquire of the Lord? Are we responsible for these things, or do we just do our own thing? This whole psalm that we want to talk about is this turning to his voice, bringing the ark back. It was so that they could inquire of the Lord. It's saying, you know what, we don't want to do this on our own wisdom. We don't want to do this as as our best counselors can give us. We don't want to do this as our armies will, will allow. We want to inquire of the Lord, something we've not been in the habit of doing. So that's what this whole psalm is kind of around. That's the history that we're talking about here. It's bringing it into a place of relationship with God. It's not a one-time thing where you, you, you go to the, the, the jukebox, you put in a coin, you get your answer, and then you're like, all right, I've, I've handled that transaction, I've checked that box, and now I can do the thing that I need to. The idea of bringing the ark to Jerusalem was that we could have an ongoing relationship, that we could actually go and spend time with God, that we can know him better, that we can remember where we come from so that we can go where the Lord is going to lead us. So the idea that, that it's not just a, a single question that I need answered, it's about a, a life that I need to live before him. And often, I think we think of our lives as a series of decisions. And we want to get wisdom for this one thing. And it, it feels so important at the time. But really, the Lord is calling us, saying, but will you walk it out with me? There's this book my wife and I read before we got married that was inviting God to your wedding and having him stay in your marriage. And I, the, the book was whatever. <laughs> The title is excellent, <laughs> right? Like the, the wedding is, is one day. Your marriage, God willing, is going to be the rest of your life. It's this idea of, of understanding that, that, that we want him to be with us, not just on these important big things. You know, there's a lot of emphasis we put on these ceremonies, but, but it's meant to be this lifestyle of relationship, of, of understanding the fullness of where it's going. And this psalm, again, is remembering that time when Israel kind of said, you know what? We want to be a people of God. We don't want to be a, a people that have a God that we consult. We want to be a people of the presence of God. I'm legitimately curious in this uh, reading what the experience of, of the human soul was like before the Holy Spirit, right? They, they had the temple eventually. Um, you know, they, they had this ark. There was this place where they could go to. They were not yet given the Holy Spirit. This, this is not a point in my sermon. It's more of a curiosity and, and something to, to think about. We live in the age where the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You know, where, where this idea of going to a place, a, a pilgrimage, is really unnecessary. But what was it like? Can, can you imagine if it's like you, you, you need to go inquire of the Lord, where do we keep that ark? <laughs> do, we, do we have it? Do the Philistines have it? Where do we have to go for it? I, I actually, I do believe that the condition of the human soul would have been remarkably different before the giving of the Holy Spirit. And what a privilege we have now to be in this age where we are the temple, where we're able to go around with the Holy Spirit with us. Do we appreciate that enough? Do we actually understand and appreciate that that the Holy Spirit is with us in a very real and concrete way? 1 Samuel 4. I want to give you a little bit of history here. We've got a, a, this is where I've got the picture. This is a, you don't have to read all these details. I'm going to kind of blitz through that history. Um, this is kind of letting you know what happened with the Ark. Not to tell you where it is now. There's a really good documentary about it starring Indiana Jones. <laughs> and you can actually, you can find out exactly what happened to the Ark. So I don't want to spoil that for you. But 
there, <laughs> there's this whole time in history before Indiana Jones where they didn't know where the Ark was. All right, so what ended up happening was the, the, uh, in 1 Samuel 4, the, the Philistines captured the Ark, okay? And long story short, the Philistines realized it was bad for them to have the Ark. Everything that they tried to do with it went wrong. Their gods were falling over in temples. There was destruction. People were dying. They'd move it to another place. More disaster. They're like, you know what? I don't, I don't want this thing anymore. So they decided that they were going to give it back. Seven months later, they return it with a large offering of golden uh, tumors and rats, which is not cool. Um, they returned it to a field, all right, just like dropping it off in a field 19 miles outside of Jerusalem called Beth Shemesh. In Beth Shemesh, people came up, they gazed at it in curiosity, and a lot of people died. <laughs> so they decided to get rid of it too. Uh, they moved it a bit northeast, a bit closer to Jerusalem, a place called uh, Kirjath Jerem, and I'm probably saying that wrong, so don't quote me on that one. And finally here, we see the story change because a person sanctified themselves to take care of it. They turned away, you see where I'm going with this? They turned away from the sin of this world, they turned away from the patterns of this world and devoted themselves to the presence of God, to walking this out. And it's amazing, this was Eleazar, the son of Abinab, and they kept it for 20 years in his house. That's the key difference. They weren't treating it like an artifact. They're not treating it like a, a machine you can go to. It, they treated it with, with sanctification, a separation from the ways of this world, and a devotion to what the Lord was having this to be about. It wasn't an artifact. It wasn't just some memory of some bygone era. It's, it's not just some treasure. It's not just a pretty thing to look at. They sanctified themselves for it, and blessing flowed. Many of us think that we're ready for the voice of the Lord. All right, I know that. I know, I know we do. I know I do. And we treat this on our own timeline. God, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm here. I, I'm presenting myself. Speak, you know, and, 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 and we just expect that, that, you know, kind of on this whim, we will receive the revelation that we want. And the thing is, God sometimes does it. He's good. But I fear that we don't actually understand the gravity and the call when we say, Lord, would you speak because your servant is listening? We don't understand that, that just because we're in the age of the Spirit, that, that doesn't actually diminish the importance of what it means when the God who created heaven and earth deems us worthy to hear his voice. It's a profound trust. It's an amazing thing that the Lord speaks to his people, that, that he's a God who still speaks that Jesus himself is the word of God. He took on flesh and walked with us. And sometimes he shows up to say, I love you. We treat the word of God often on our own timeline, when we want it and how we want it. Because we judge things as the world does, right? The world's way, if you put in this amount of effort, you can expect to get this amount of return, right? If I plant these seeds, I'm going to expect this crop. I've been a Christian now for five years, therefore I should have six merit badges, three sashes, two certificates of, of appreciation, you know, and those certificates expire, so you got to, you know, get that, that renewed and, and make sure you're doing it, but maturity doesn't work like that. This whole idea of, of turning, it's not about accomplishing things, it's really about maturing, understanding that we need to become the people that God has called us to be. This process of sanctification 
Uh, yeah, that there's a thing like you're being sanctified, but are you ever done? This idea of, of turning away from things and embracing more things, I'll tell you, it seems to be an ongoing process. And as long as I've been a Christian, I still feel like there's so much more for me to turn away from and to embrace and to hear and to put into practice and become more and more like Christ. And this is a good thing. It is so sad to me to see Christians who have been Christians for so long but are still remarkably immature, where we we can't handle emotions, where we can't handle theology, where we can't handle and, and be trusted with the voice of God. And it's hard. The, the, this mic is sometimes concerning because we don't know what will be said. Like I said, it's wonderful whenever it, it's the, the word of God, when scripture itself, but it really is a, a challenge for us because what if you have an immature person who wants to grandstand? You know, what if you have a person who wants this to be all about me? What if they come up here with, you know, all, all this, this me, 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 selfish stuff, and how do we pastor that? Well, that's our job. That's not your job to discern that the pastor should step in, but that's the challenge of this. But may we not ever turn away from the voice of the Lord when he speaks. It is so important that we treat the word of God with this respect. Like the Ark of the Covenant, we can treat the word of God casually. We can treat it like one word of counsel among many. I'll read the Bible and I'll read some blog posts and I'll I'll listen to some podcasts, I'll talk to some friends, and then I'll do what seems best to me. When instead, if the Lord speaks, I actually love what, what Anne shared here because it's actually powerful. It was when the Lord spoke and said, peace with you, right? It wasn't that, that you could have this boldness on your own to say, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. When the Lord speaks, how powerful, how clear. Because if we just take his as one word of counsel among many, we've reduced him to maybe a friend who gives some interesting advice from time to time. And this is why we want to write these cards down. This is why we want to, to have these prophetic words because we want to treat it with the, the dignity and the honor and the respect of actually discerning and saying, Lord, are you speaking? Is this you? Because if it is, we don't want to miss it. Because if it's you, you alone have the words of life. Where else can we turn? We need to hear you speak, Lord. Most of us say, and I, I believe that we believe, that if we were to really hear God speak, we would do what he said. You, you might have prayed a prayer very similar to that, if not exactly like, Lord, if I just knew, if you would just say this, I would do whatever, right? And most of us, when we say that prayer, when we mean it, what we expect is some big thing, like, I need you to lay down your life. I need you to give your entire fortune. I need you to, to, to sacrifice your very life for these things. And I think we're often disillusioned when the word of God says, love your neighbor. I think we're often disillusioned when the Lord says, will you faithfully support this family in need by giving them $100, $200, not an overwhelming amount, and maybe doing it anonymous, anonymously, maybe pro- just providing these things. It's small, and it costs you, in fact, more. I am so sad by all the times that I hear parents say things like, I don't know what's wrong with my kids. Like, I'll give them therapy. Like, I'll put them in, in this. Will you sit and talk to them? <laughs> will you listen to them? right? It often seems like we're willing to do these extravagant things, like we, we, we need a big vacation, we need to get away, and well, I don't have the time, and I don't have the money to do all that, and, and so we, we put these things off because we think they have to be these big things, when the Lord is probably saying, love your children, listen to them, understand their story, show them that kindness and that respect. That is often, I think, the hardest thing for us as parents, as, as, as friends, 
as co-laborers in the kingdom of God, as co-workers with each other, brothers and sisters and people outside the kingdom, often what we're called to do is simple, but it seems to somehow cost us more. Go and suffer, go and die. In our moments of bravery and passion, of course, we want to say yes to those things. But he's calling us to a life of walking these things out. He's calling us to spend our daily, regular life in pursuit of the kingdom of God and choosing his ways over ours. The psalm doesn't recount the part of the story where uh, David got scared. All right. In transit, y'all probably know about this. We, we skip over these things sometimes. When, when Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, y'all, if you've read your Bibles, you know this, right? And it's awkward because what happened? He was struck dead. And we read and we're like, ooh, what do I make of that? <laughs> and we kind of mentally say, okay, it happened. I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. I'll put that on my, on my back shelf. And he was just trying to steady it. He didn't want it to fall. It would have been worse if it fell, God. Like, what, what is happening in this story? Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, and he was struck dead. They stopped bringing it to Jerusalem, and for three months, it stayed with Obed-Edom. And this part of the story bothers me as well. Obed-Edom was blessed. David saw that Obed-Edom was blessed. He's like, no, 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 that's my blessing. <laughs> I need that, that ark back. Let, let's, keep, let's do this the right way. And that's what happened. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of the God. So David went to bring up the ark, from, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And I feel a little bit bad for Obed-Edom. But the thing is, again, the Lord knew what he was doing. He had to usher in something. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't let things be treated with disdain. He couldn't let the, the, the actual presence of God in this time before the Holy Spirit be diminished, where it was careless. I believe that there was love. I believe that there's justice. I believe that there was forgiveness in everything in this act. But that's actually a sermon for another day. <laughs> the two parts of the psalm break down into two sections. The first is where David is to the Lord, and, and then the second is the Lord to David. So now that we have that history, let's read this again. Lord, remember David and all of his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrath. And came upon in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. That's the first half of it. That's David making an oath to the Lord. Now the second part is now where the Lord is giving an oath to David. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, the statutes I teach them, their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her faithful people 
will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. This psalm feels backwards to me because one of the things, if you've heard me, me speak for more than a few weeks, hopefully I've said it, the Lord is always previous, right? He heals that we can be healed, you know, that we can bring healing to others. He loves so that we can love each other. Like, he forgave so that we can bring forgiveness. The Lord created, he began this whole process. The Lord is always previous, and that's actually from A.W. Tozier. That's not mine. But what we have in the psalm is David going first, you know? David speaks first, and then the Lord kind of seems to come in and, and, and chime in with his own thing, and it feels backwards to me. God was not compelled by David's words to make an oath. We need that to be understood. It, it's not that David was going to be so righteous and so holy that he compelled the Lord to then speak. But I do believe that David had been following this whole way of turning away from certain things, to hear the Lord, to want to be a blessing to the Lord, that he opened up that conversation, that he was able to say no to certain things and yes to, to, to choose the voice of God. He had to do that turning that he could hear the Lord speak to him and say, this is what I long for. This is what I've been wanting to do. So much of the time, we're so busy with our own agendas that we don't turn and we miss on what the Lord is saying. I believe there probably could have been a precursor to this where the Lord was preparing David's heart, where the Lord was ministering, where the Lord was speaking that we just don't have the visibility into here. The thing is to hear from God, it's not just that it can be overwhelming, it can be condemning. This is the words of Isaiah. Woe to me. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If we hadn't yet turned in sanctification, if we don't yet turn, do we expect the presence of the Lord to come in here now and speak to us when we are not prepared? Is the church prepared to hear the Lord speak? And, I, and here's a spoiler. Here's what I'm going to say. Our yes has to be presumed because the Lord is actually kind and gracious. If our hearts are not already inclined to say yes to the Lord, if he shows up and says, follow me, and we go, uh, I don't know if I'm ready, we've heaped condemnation on ourselves. We have told the Lord God Almighty, no. His graciousness is often in, I won't say his silence, but in his timing of when he speaks and how he speaks. John 9, 41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. We presume so much about ourselves. We presume we can see. We presume we can understand. We presume our yeses and all these things. The Lord knows our hearts. And I believe he is kind and gracious that he calls to us when we're ready. Hearing the voice of God gives us a responsibility. It has a gravity. We have to respond when the Lord speaks. And it's served well with some degree of appreciation, worship, and maturity. God's words are inseparable from him bringing about what he says. There's no, do you promise, right? Like that whole first thing, will you do something for me? And, and he doesn't say, it. God will complete what he says. When God speaks, it's the word of God. It will be fulfilled. It will be satisfied. I had this moment in the, the uh, line, the Witch in the Wardrobe, this picture of Aslan roaring, which is such a powerful picture to me because it, this is, if you know the movie, if you don't, here, here's the context of it. I actually, I had to look up the, 
the, the dialogue from it on IMDb, and it's just, it's just great. It's Aslan. She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. In parentheses, everybody cheers. Jadis the White Witch says, how do I know your promise will be kept? In parentheses, Aslan roars. <laughs> it's such a powerful thing. How do I know God will keep his promises? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like this, this presumption, like, well, are you kidding me? Do you know who you're talking to? Do, do we actually, do we doubt the Lord himself? It, it's beyond his character. It's inseparable from that. Jesus, the vineyard has, has kind of coined this phrase, and I love it. Jesus is the word worker. He says a word, and he works it out. When Jesus says something, he has the power and the authority to enact what is said. Whenever he's killed on the cross, death cannot hold him. Death itself cannot keep him from fulfilling his promise that that fourth cup would be drunk, that he would find fulfillment and satisfaction on the day of Jesus. Jesus is the word worker. It's not just words. He's the word worker. Remember all those questions from the beginning. How, will you do this for me? You know, will you do if the Lord speaks, he will do it. We ask them because our words and our actions are often separated. Sometimes I, I, I see things in, in movies that, that, that just bug me. You know, there's this whole meme thing you have where, like, the guy's about to go off to, to war, and the woman is, you know, teary-eyed as she's about to go off, and it's going to be sad, and she goes, promise me you'll come home. He looks at her very loving. He's like, I promise. And then he dies on the <laughs> battlefield, you know, and you know it's coming because we don't have the power and the authority to fulfill those promises. The Lord does. The Lord does. That's the thing. He is the word worker. When he says something, he can ensure that it will be satisfied. We don't have that, but we have something else. Do we have, not the power to, to do this, but the corollary to that is that do we have obedience to what is spoken to us? That when the word worker speaks, Will we listen and say yes, and will we obey? Or will we hem and haw and kind of find our own thing? I believe David was at this point, uh, whatever the Lord says I'm going to do. I'm not seeking a relic in Jerusalem. I'm seeking the presence of God so I can inquire him, so I can be with him, so I can worship, so, th so that I can have this life spent before my God and my king, because otherwise I'm lost. I desire not just some history. I don't desire a memory. I need to move forward into what the Lord's going to be telling me to do, not just today, but tomorrow. And a mile down the road and six miles down the road, his voice is what is going to tell me where to go. Is our hearing inseparable to our obedience? We, we like for the, the hearing of the Lord to be reduced to a formula or a generality. God speaks like this and not like that. God speaks to these people, but not to those people. If God only spoke to the righteous, how would anyone get saved? <laughs> God speaks to the hardest-hearted atheists, and he calls them to come close. And if he only speak to the hard-hearted atheists and not to his own people, what kind of a loving father is that, right? So how you can't compel the Lord to speak. You can't force his hand to do what we want to do. But we can have this relationship with him. We can engage with him through, through worship through actual heart desires, through who we're made to be. There's a link between hearing and obedience. 
God knows all things, and is he going to call you to do something that you won't say yes to? Or is that really just mean? <laughs> right? He's not setting you up for failure. He's not, he's not doing entrapment. You know, I knew you wouldn't say that, so now I got you. Now I, now I can punish you. God wouldn't do that. When our hearts are turned away from him, when we don't have a yes to our Lord, he's going to entice us. He's going to love us. He's going to give us years of where worship can soften us, where we rejoice in his presence, and where we just want to delight him, and we understand his ways are better. Why would I not choose his ways? And then we begin hearing the Lord more clearly because our yes, our obedience is presumed. If the Lord speaks, yes, Father, I will do it. That's a healthy walking out of the life of a disciple. Much of the Christian walk is developing ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart of worship. And that's when we say, speak, your servant is listening. This is 1 Samuel 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God has not yet gone out, and Samuel is lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Parents. <laughs> Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. I'm adding tone. I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go, lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. What a wonderful passage. The, the Lord wants to be heard. It's his desire. He, he wants to delight. He needs to do that. He will be calling to us. We can have confidence that he desires that relationship with us. But we don't often recognize it. It's not always something that we expect. It's always on my mind when I want to press into the Lord is, is speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We can't make him speak. It's not a party trick or a magic eight ball. Or it's not a cause and effect sort of thing. There's no perfect state where we can make this work to our satisfaction. If you set up this house of cards like this, you will hear from the Lord at the end of this. That, that's not how this works. That's somebody trying to sell you a book. We, we conjecture and we plan and we can certify and we can try to learn. David wanted the ark close. That was his desire. I want the Lord to be close because there I can know that I can go and I can spend time and I can worship and I can hear and I can ask and, and I can have that relationship. He found a path by worshiping in front of it. The path to Jerusalem was paved in worship. It's amazing because he wasn't permitted to build a temple, this permanent place. Solomon made it better. Solomon made a better plan. Solomon made a home, a place. He made the holy of holies. Solomon heard from God. Solomon had a promise from God. Solomon did not end well. <laughs> it's not our plans. 
It's not what you can build with your two hands. It's the heart of worship. It's that longevity, a spending that time and not having a transactional understanding of your walk with God. That I give you this and then you give me this and then and this is how it goes and next time I need you I'll give you this and then you'll give me that. That leads to dead end religion. David had a relationship with the God himself. He had a wrestling and that wrestling is a state where we hear 1 Kings 19, this will be the, the last scripture I, I give you here. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. He's having a bad day. All right, the king is out to kill him. You know, he's just trying to honor God. Things are rough. Elijah was afraid, probably a little bit of a understatement, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, bush <laughs> and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Lay down under the bush and fell asleep. This is our part. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. This is a bad day. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) There's this time when Jesus is is up there on the mountain, right, with the transfiguration. And all these things were happening, and his disciples saw that this was a good thing. Like, things are, supernatural things are happening. We want to stay here. Let's build tents and be here. And the Lord's like, you don't know what you're saying. We want a formula. We, We want a place or a thing or a time that we're like, this is it. This is the thing. The Lord is always calling us forward. He's always calling us to the place where we can be, not where he is today, but where he will have us be tomorrow. Following the Lord's voice is knowing that we'll be ready tomorrow for what tomorrow is going to bring. Not where we know that he was with us yesterday. Not where we even have the satisfaction of knowing that God's got this today. But having the voice of the Lord guide us is that blessed assurance that my tomorrows are in his hand. As long as I follow his voice, as long as I'm not stuck in my own ways, as long as I'm not looking backwards, the Lord is going to take me exactly where I need to be. There's one consistent message to the entirety of Scripture is that we can't treat spiritual matters like a formula. God cannot be reduced to a law of physics or be defined in a way that makes him small or subservient. And history shows that time and time again, we try to do just that. We try to reduce him down. We try to understand him, and we try to say, this is how it's going to work, and we write books, and we we preach sermons, (laughs) and it fails. You have these move of God. You you have these revivals, and eventually we codify it, and eventually we think, this is the song we sang. This is the prayer we prayed. This is, what, what happened when God did that? What were we doing? Well, I was sitting right here, and this person was sitting right there, and they said this, and then I did this, and we want to make this thing so we can conjure it up again. And it's magical thinking, and it's not a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. But we have this remembrance that propels us forward. 
a history that serves us to get ready, positioned, eager, understanding, and passionate so that our yes is presumed. God, I know what you're like. I will say yes when you speak. Just from the psalm itself, I want to call our attention to something. This can be read like we've been discussing, building a place to meet with God, but there's something else going on here. This was a place for God to rest. It wasn't a place for our benefit. David wasn't seeking to, to have this place where everything would be defined and he could go. He didn't have to walk so far to this pasture to inquire of the Lord. It wasn't trying to shorten that journey. He was building a place for God to rest. Not for our benefit, but for his. Do you, do you actually see the compassion that David is? He's extending compassion to the Lord, saying, Lord, I want to build you a resting place. I want you to have a home. It was offered as a blessing, offered as a sacrifice. Where do you like to rest? There's something satisfying about mowing your lawn and laying in a, in a hammock with that smell of grass. I haven't had that in a while. Our yard's a bit of a mess, and I don't like mowing the lawn. But, <laughs> but there's this wonderful thing about being with the fruit of your labor, a creator spending time in his creation, that he wanted to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. We associate provision, unfortunately, with work. If I, if I earn enough, if I do enough work, then I'll get this benefit. Abundance we get from labor. But that's not the picture we have in the psalm. David says this, this is verse 8. Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And the hope he has is righteousness and joy. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. But from God's perspective, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I've desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her faithful people will ever sing for joy. When God is in power, when he's on the throne, there is blessing. <laughs> in, out of his rest, there is blessing. Like when he is at rest, goodness just flows. That's how good our God is. He can't help but be a blessing wherever he is. Enough for everyone. The poor are well fed. We are clothed. The righteousness that was our hope is realized as salvation. God, I was asking for righteousness. I, I didn't want to be condemned. Well, here's salvation. Righteousness becomes salvation. And yes, there is joy. We started this journey through the Psalms with a realization about how great is our God how awesome and how terrible he is that he's a consuming fire, no dashboard Jesus, that he's worthy of praise. If we've made it this far in turning and coming back to God and turning away from some things and turning towards other things, those hard times aren't the highlights. The things that we leave behind don't warrant our attention. This isn't a reductionist history. Him looking back at the time of the ark coming and forgetting about Uzzah forgetting about those times where all the people died and the golden tumors and all that time there, that doesn't make the history, not because we're reducing it and forgetting it, but because we know what comes next. Because the glory of God is in his temple. Because he led David through all the hard times. Because we had the presence of God. We had the voice of God. When I look back, that's what we remember. If you're traumatized, right, if you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, you look back and you relive all the hard times. If you're healed and delivered, they can be forgotten. You can enjoy the life that God's given you. 
Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Everything else is rubbish. All I remember is Christ. All I remember is his presence. All I remember is his words. Not that that stuff didn't happen, but it doesn't define me. I, I, I'm not defined as a victim. I, I'm a healed, freed person. This is where we're going. It's not necessarily where we are right now, but when the voice of God calls me to tomorrow, that's what it begins to look like because he's good, because we meet with him in the land of the living. That means tomorrow is closer to the end result than yesterday was. That's our hope. That's why we're not just turning away from things. We have to move where the Lord is calling us himself. kind of just dropped my notes there at the end. <laughs> I want us to pray for this for us. I want us to be a people that, that move in that direction, that aren't statically defined. Actually, we can't be statically defined because our lease ends here in a bit. Come <laughs> <laughs> up, Jessica, with some worship. Um, I don't know if you hear from the Lord to your satisfaction. I'm going to presume you don't. All right. May you be challenged to see in your own heart if you have no, a, a call to obedience, if your yes is the first thing when the Lord speaks, or if you hem and haw, and if you want to consult other voices and all those things, and realize, realize that the goodness that worship before the ark, the goodness that, that celebration of who God is, a goodness of recognizing what he's called us from, how that can prepare us for today and for tomorrow. If you are hungry for the voice of God, I want to tell you there's hope to hear. There's hope to hear. I have no doubt you can and will hear from the Lord. But I do believe that often we have to mature. Often we have to turn. Often we have to make that space. So if there's something you have to lay down, if there's something you have to say no to, don't, don't wait. Really, you're, you're just delaying the inevitable because God is a good God. He will get you. <laughs> But this can be the day. I believe that. This can be the day. So I want to pray for you all. Pray for us. But we'll be available to pray for anybody who needs more. Um, this will be our dismissal because, as I tend to do, I go long. Um, if you need to grab your kids, do so. But we'll go from here. Do our ministry. Worship some more. Love each other. And walk from here. Lord, you are a good God. And I don't take it